Hi, I'm Natalie from Boston, Massachusetts. Hi, I'm Aaron from New Jersey. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week's program was recorded live in New York City at WNYC Radio. Let's go to the stage for my interview with Scott Adson. Scott's a legend in the world of improv comedy, especially at the Second City. And it was at Second City where he met Tina Fey, who eventually cast him as her best pal on NBC's 30 Rock. At 30 Rock, he has the distinct privilege of being around Tracy Morgan every single day. Every writer has a small tape recorder. (laughs) And they just start up a conversation with Tracy, bring it back to the room, and start typing. (laughs) He's an amazing man with an amazing Lamborghini. I haven't seen his Lamborghini. Oh, it's orange. I've seen his ass. What were the circumstances? Oh, you know, he's he's naked all the time. That's not true. That's not true. Okay, good. Only when you ask. Um... So, uh, Scott, I, I heard that you uh, first saw The Second City as, um, as a kid. Did it, make a, did it make a big impression on you? Were you talking to my mom? <laughs> yeah, of course. I saw, I saw Tim Kazarinski and George Wendt and Mary Gross uh, on stage at Second City when I was maybe, gee, seventh grade? <laughs> Not to age them. Uh, and they were also in seventh grade. And it was, um, they were, you know, spectacular. I, it, was, uh, it was something I never thought I would do. It was like watching people fly. It's like you know, when you're a kid, you never think you'll be an adult. I never thought I would do something that spectacular. And then I did, maybe not as well as they did, but I felt very lucky when I got the job, yeah. What did you like so much about it when, when you saw it as a, as a kid? Well, they were effortlessly funny. They were just charming, and everything came out of who they were rather than what they were handed or something, you know? They, uh, they seemed to love it. They had a great time, and I was part of it because I could at any time ruin the show by yelling something out. <laughs> <laughs> and then later, as a profession, I did. did had, you, had you figured out, like, how to make a joke and what being funny was when you were... T- I mean, Are sincerely. you asking some, for some advice? No. <laughs> It wouldn't help. Um, I, no, it's sincerely like there's... I remember in my childhood a point where I, I had this friend who would make jokes to me, and I was like, hey, you know what? I bet I could try that on for size. You know, when I was like 10, 11 years old, this, you're looking at me like I'm insane. I think that's not too weird. Like the idea that, that making sure a joke wasn't... Thought. But I'm, I'm wondering if you had the idea then that that was something that you could actually do. Like, it was something that was achievable. It, well, wasn't, a, it wasn't a magic trick. Well, it's very like a magic trick, actually, except that um, it's different in that you don't rehearse it over and over again. But that's the joy, I think, of live performance, and especially improv, is that people watching it can't believe what they're seeing. And a lot of them, my dad especially, was suspicious <laughs> about... Improv, because it would go, you know, at the Second City level, if you will, people are very good at it, and my dad would sit in the audience and go, now, how much of that did you plan out before? Where's the, um, have you got a script for that? Well, no, Dad, you suggested that scene, remember? Yeah, you made me suggest that somewhere. (laughs) 
So it is, it is like a magic trick, I think, for the audience, and, I, and that's exciting. Um, what's the question? What about for... What is a joke? The question, was about, <laughs> the question was, what about for you? Like, where was the point in your life when you felt like, oh, I can pull that rabbit out of a hat? Ah, uh, probably seventh grade, I had my first improv class uh, taught by uh, Karen Little, who was rumored to be a playmate when she was younger. <laughs> And she was gorgeous. Probably still is. Karin, if you're out there, I'm still, <laughs> still thinking about you. And now he's on television. I got the money to keep you young. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she taught me improv in the, in the class as well. It wasn't just me. And, uh, and I found uh, that I was pretty good at it. I was the best one in my seventh grade class doing it. And that was enough to encourage me to say, yeah, this is a living, I think. What was your first entree into professional comedy? Gee, um, probably the Second City Training Center, because at our graduation show, we each got a piece of the door. And so uh, I think I earned $2 <laughs> on my first night, and I said, this is, my, this is uh, the first night of a long and uh, fruitless career. <laughs> <laughs> Did you really say that to yourself? Did you know that's what you wanted? I didn't have a choice. Because I, I knew I wanted to be that before I started making money. And I made sure that I have no skills in any other area. <laughs> <laughs> because if, you have, if you're an actor, let me give you some advice. If you're a young actor and you want to make a living, don't learn to do anything else. If you have something to fall back on, you will. <laughs> What was the what was the lowest point in your in your meteoric rise? <laughs> uh, gee, well, just being I guess being out of work, just for years of, of uh, not working. Like being in, in L.A., I moved to L.A. after Second City uh, to write a show with my partner Dino from Moral Oral, uh, Dino Stamatopoulos, and Stephen Colbert. Uh, we wrote a show for um, for Barry Levinson and Tom Fontana, and. Robert Morton from David Letterman and various other things since uh, that gig 20 years ago. Um, and it was an hour-long comedy pilot, which would be a show that takes place backstage at a show similar to Saturday Night Live. <laughs> and as it turned out, the same year, uh, Paul Rubens was uh, developing the same idea as, as was Ellen DeGeneres. <laughs> so we were way ahead of Tina Fey uh, by 10 years, but uh, none of us got it right. And um, I'm answering a question. Oh, um, so that show didn't go, and I was stuck in L.A. and didn't have a job, and so I was borrowing money from my folks to pay rent, and, and also living off my girlfriend, Anastasia, at the time, who was very generous and, and the, one of the best actresses I've ever seen, and she was working uh, as a receptionist. And... We were just living the L.A. life as actors and, you know, eating whatever we could find on the street. And, <laughs> and uh, living in a, in a car. Well, outside a car. We were in the house that was next to the car. <laughs> did, did you ever... I mean, it's, that's one of the cool things about, um, about the entertainment industry 
is that you could do something that is the, one of the top successes, which is actually be hired to write a television program. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if that doesn't work, then all of a sudden you're not just you know, one step lower. One step lower is completely unemployed. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 bless you. Feast or famine. And, uh, and there was you know, a lot of famine. And then I started making commercials, and I did a bunch of commercials. Uh, I couldn't get a job in Chicago as a commercial actor. I did one or two, and then I got to L.A. and somehow found the skill, whatever that is. What is that skill? I'm not sure. I think it's just uh, saying yes and then making it better. It's like the director says, do this, and you, st- you think, God, that's stupid. <laughs> and then you do that, and then you do something a little extra to make it better. So I made a bunch of commercials that did, that did very well, and I, luckily I did commercials that I'm not embarrassed about. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Tour posters for our live shows in New York and Philadelphia were printed by VGKids.com, who have been screen printing shirts, posters, and more in Ypsilanti, Michigan for 10 years, online at VGKids.com. Also, don't forget to check out the brand new Max Fun store at MaximumFun.org and to register for Max Fun Con 2010, happening May 7th through the 9th. Go to MaxFunCon.com. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week's show recorded live on stage at WNYC Radio in New York. My guest is Scott Adsit. He's an actor on NBC's 30 Rock. He was also an actor, writer, and producer on the recently concluded Adult Swim series, Moral Oral. You worked on uh, Moral Oral. One of the other um, primary creative uh, driving forces of that show was this guy, Dino Stamatopoulos, who yeah. you wrote that pilot with. Mm-hmm. Um, Dino's been on The Sound of Young America. He's an amazing dude. And uh, I feel like I, one amazing thing I saw him do once was a... Uh, a sketch uh, on live television with Andy Dick where Andy Dick literally physically beat ah, him up. Yeah. Uh, they had a bit, which they used to do in Chicago, because um, they were partners back in the day, and Dino and Andy Dick and I all went to college together. And uh, one of the bits they would do in the cabarets was uh, Who's On First? They would just do Who's On First. And if you remember, Bud Abbott would hit Costello a lot in that. And um, Andy, Dino's a masochist. And not metaphorically. He likes Literal. women to beat him up. <laughs> and uh, Andy would hit him as hard as he possibly could uh, when he would screw up or whatever. So the bit was just them trying to get through <laughs> who's on first while Andy's beating the... Sh- I can't say that. The such and such. <laughs> the stuffing. He's beating the stuffing out of Dinopolis. <laughs> I mean, I'm I'm not gonna um, I'm not gonna make any judgments about uh, Dino Stamatopoulos, who I found to be an incredibly gracious and charming guy, or Andy Dick, who I've never met. But less you, charming, less charming. Okay, <laughs> but you seem like a real sweetheart and a real normal fella. So how'd you fall in with this crowd? <laughs> I don't know. It's funny. Dino is a big drinker. He loves his drink, and he loves. Uh, bizarre sex and will, he'll tell you about it if, if you see if you see Dino ask him a question about what he does that you would never do <laughs> and he's happy to tell you he's kind of addicted to truth it's a great thing about him and um, me I, I don't drink I am only learning now to swear 
Um, and I, yeah, I'm pretty straight laced. It's, well, it's, so is everybody here compared to Dino. Um, but I don't know. We we click. I don't know why. I think, some... I think because we're both. We are both very sweet men. Moral Oral is a um, uh, what's that kind of animation called? Stop, a motion. stop motion with the, like the um, famous Christmas specials. It's in the style of Davey, What's that show called? Davy Davy and, and Goliath. Yeah. Davy and Goliath. Um, and it's uh, it's a story about a, a an incredibly sweet kid, um, and it's a story about faith. Um, and also just about really horrible, disturbing stuff often, but without losing that central sweetness. Um, what's it like for what was it like for you to work with Dino on this show where he's driving towards these really intense positions and you're being relatively less intense? Well, I I can be intense, <laughs> um, and I can. You know, <laughs> we had an episode uh, where. Oral, it's, Oral is the name of the kid, and he uh, is being raised by uh, devout Christians, Presbyterians, and, uh, and they don't know anything about Christianity. They just know what to be afraid of and teach uh, their kid what to do through their skewed logic uh, because they don't understand their religion. They're, they're hypocrites. Uh, so what generally happened in the first season was that Oral would be taught a lesson by the pastor or by his parents and then kind of misunderstand it and and horror would ensue uh, while he's trying to do good. And it's because he's being taught wrong that he gets it wrong. So <laughs> m- my first contribution to it was uh, we ought to have Oral f- find a way to get Oral into people's houses and <laughs> over them while they sleep. <laughs> And we kind of backtracked from that idea. <laughs> and uh, so that was mine. So, uh, you know, I can, I can go there. If we... <laughs> Eventually, though, the show got away from that idea of just trying to be shocking or whatever and, and uh, developed a soul, and that's why it got canceled. <laughs> <laughs> what, do you, what do you think the soul was? What, what, was, the, what was the kernel? Um, hmm. you, you have to understand faith if you want to be trust faith, if you want to teach faith. And the problem is, the more you know about faith, the more you learn about history, the less faithful you will be, because, because there's, like a, there's a book I read called uh, Why I'm Not a Christian by a preacher who, or a priest, who his central edict was, if you know the history of Christianity, you can't remain a, a Christian. So a lot of Christianity and, um, and most religions are based on and, and rely on people not being interested enough to educate themselves about what they believe. And ignorance is the driving force behind a lot of it. It does a lot of great things, but it also, it's, it's the blind leading the blind at this point, I think. I read that your, um, your commitment to the show almost sort of led to a mini meltdown in your immediate family. Yeah. My, well, my sister, C, is a Christian and her whole family, and they're very devout, and they're very good at it. They do understand it. They do know the history, and still they uh, stick to it. But uh, they raise their kids very well. They have three boys who are magically wonderful. I can't believe how great the kids are. And, uh, and they just get Christianity right, and they're not hypocrites. And I showed the show to her and some of her friends, and she just didn't like it. (laughs) 
And she felt personally insulted, uh, and I assured her that it was not about her. It's about people who... Bad Christians, which there are millions of. (laughs) And she said, but this is not helping the people who are getting it right. This is hurting us because we look crazy in most of the media already. And, and she's right. They're not. They're not crazy. Most Christians kind of are. <laughs> or at least lazy. So we had an argument, and at some point Dino and I were on the phone with her and debating the merits of the show, and uh, either me or, or Dino, Dino or I laughed um, during the debate, but it was not so much at her. I think one of us was laughing at the others, kind of like... Um, flurry of emotions going on and she got really insulted and hung up on us and it, it created a rift between me, me and my sister and we don't ever fight we get along great and uh, we argued about the show and the next day we, did, we called each other and decided to bury the hatchet and we couldn't, we started arguing yelling at each other again, that never happens and we hung up on each other again and then an, another day went by and just decided to resolve this and and I ended up defending the show which is a mistake and she ended up uh, attacking the show which she didn't want to do and it again ended terribly and so she I said all right I'm going to quit the show because my family is more important than this cartoony thing I'm doing and if there's anything to be learned from our show from Moral Oral it's that the family is more important than what you want to believe so uh, I went in and I said, I got to quit because this is causing a rift in my family and my family's more important. And, uh, and they said, that's terrible, okay. And then I called my sister and told her and she said, that's, thank you. And she, she kind of trailed off and she was a little upset that I had done it. Uh, but she was honored, I guess. And then a few days later, she called up and said, listen, I'm, I'm proud that you're doing something. Because I was, you know, living uh, the life of, of a unworking or a commercial actor anyway. And, uh, and I, th- this was my project. So uh, she said, let's just not talk about it. Go back to work. I'm proud of you. She's a good, well, she's a good Christian. <laughs> and uh, so I did. And, uh, and then we did the second season. She ignored the first season, which is a lot of shock humor. And, uh, and a lot of kind of like Christian baiting, to tell you the truth. And uh, the next season started, and we started drifting a little bit away from that. And she uh, saw it and called me up and said, I think it was great. It was a great episode, the first one of the second season. And so she started watching it, and now she likes it. And uh, so it's all come back. Let's talk for a second about 30 Rock. 30 Rock is... Um it's like my it's my favorite show on my wife's series. I like practically I can can't I like bounce around when it's about to come on television. I'm so excited. Well, it's better than Belly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I I can't get enough of it. Your your character uh, Pete on the show is um, the head writer of the program. No, and, no, no. He's a producer. He's a producer. You're of a the big program. fan. I can see. Uh, <laughs> Pete, 
Pete is, is uh, a producer, and he gets things done. He, he uh, makes sure it all works. And then Tina's character, Liz, is He's also the... a producer, and she's the head writer. Okay. Pete is the, is the right-hand man to Tina Fey's character. The sort of the... And also, in a funny way, the most moral character. In, in many ways... He's the least crazy. <laughs> Was, do you think that you? How do you think that you ended up uh, having Tina Fey write that particular part for you? Um, well, she based it on Mike Shoemaker, who's a producer at SNL or was. And now he's doing uh, Fallon, and he's just this really nice family guy uh, who um, has some peculiar points of view, which come out through Pete. Um, uh, I don't know how much I can say without insulting his family. <laughs> Uh, but so it's based on Shoemaker and a bit on me. Um, she wrote it, she says, for me. She called me up a year or two before she uh, started the pilot and said, would you be interested? And I said, yeah. So uh, I think it was written for me. That's the impression I get. He's a character who is always uh, sensitive to Tina Fey's character's needs and also whose, whose home life is always in apparent complete disastrous disarray. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, uh, Scott, thank you so much for being on the San Diego America. It was so great to have you up here. Your voice got so high just now. <laughs> I don't know if that's because you're being sincere or because you're just lying through your teeth. It's just my natural mellifluousness. That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's Radio Sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones with special help on life, production, and direction this week from our editor, Nick White. Our theme music was provided to us by Dan Wally, and you can find us online at MaximumFun.org, where you can find our brand new Max Fun store featuring super, ultra, awesome stuff for you to spend your money on. <laughs> Let's put it simply, huh? If you have thoughts about this show, you can email me directly. My personal email address, my real email address, the one that my mom uses, is jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. jesse at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.